And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. I have my coffee. I've had my waffles. And it's now time to take on Tolkien. Welcome everyone, we are live from the bunker. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor here at Sci-Fi For Me. And uh, today, we're gonna dive in a little, well, it might not be a deep dive, but we're going to take a look at the Tolkien Summer Seminar. And my camera is just not in the right place anymore. What's up with that? The chat is open, the comments are active, and uh, we do have email if you want to send us feedback that way, live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com. If you want to suggest a guest for us to invite, a topic for us to discuss, you are more than welcome to do that. And I gotta say, the... the uh, Cabin in the Woods feels a lot more peeling the longer I go with all of this. Uh, we do want to give a shout out to everybody who is listening to us on a podcast platform. We've got audience uh, all over the world. We're glad you're with us as well. Russia, Ireland, the UK, Brazil, Australia, to mention a few. France, Germany, Spain. Japan, New Zealand. I mean, we've got people listening to us from all over the world, and it's very gratifying to see that. We are two subscribers away from 1,900 on our uh, on our YouTube subscriber count. Uh, I see Matween in the chat. Hyper Kaiju also there. Cabin in the Woods. I'm looking for real estate on another planet at this point. Well, I can certainly sympathize with that. Um... Although the only the only thing that would the only thing that would prevent me from going elseworld would be the the distance from family and and the trouble that it would be uh, to get back to visit. I mean, it's bad enough that I don't get uh, enough enough opportunity. Well, we don't take the time, I guess, uh, to go down to. Uh, visit my family in Dallas as often as I would like, but that's a you know that's a question of a number of different things happening all at once. So anyway, so um, let's see, o oxygen. What are you What are you talking about? Oxygen. What? Uh, oh well, it, 
Yes, but I mean, if we were to go live on the Mars colony, for example, I think they would probably ship in some oxygen for us. So I, you know, I, I don't know that we'd have to be responsible for our own oxygen supply. Although, <laughs> this day and age, you never know. You might want to set some aside anyway. Um, okay, so uh, let's let's start a little bit. A few weeks ago, the Tolkien Society had their summer seminar, and I have I have put off saying anything about it because I wanted to have some people on here who could actually talk t- with some uh, degree of facility that I don't have. Uh, I've read. The Lord of the Rings books more than once, yes. I've seen the movies more than once, yes. I have a copy. I have two copies of the Cimmerillion. But I don't consider myself adequately educated about you know, the scholarship side of Tolkien's work. I've not done the deep dive research that a lot of Tolkien fans have done. It's just, you know, mainly it's a question of having the time to do it. Um, But there are others who have, and so we're going to rely a little bit on those, uh, those reactions. Now, let me, let me preface this And we'll start with who the Tolkien Society actually is. This is from their website, TolkienSociety.org. An educational charity, literary society, and international fan club devoted to promoting the life and works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Registered in England, the society was founded in 1969 and received the blessing of Tolkien himself when he agreed to become the society's president. He remains the society's president to this day, whilst his daughter Priscilla serves as our vice president. All right, so ostensibly, we have members of the family still involved in the Tolkien Society. Although based in the UK, the society has hundreds of members in dozens of countries around the world who hold local events in their areas and who all receive the society's journals Amon Hen and Melorn. What binds all members together is a shared passion for the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. All right, so that's that's the basic gist of who the Tolkien Society is. And that sounds all fine and well and good. That's that's good. We we are enthusiastic fans of Tolkien and his work, and we're going to get together and we're going to celebrate and talk about and there are conferences and workshops and some various different things of course there are other fan groups you have the one ring.net and you have also the one ring.com not to be confused with each other and they have definitely uh, they have definitely taken different positions shall we say with regard to the culture combat that is now starting to uh, come into the world of Tolkien. And I say that, uh, that's going to probably uh, set off a number of reactions from some people. Oh, it's not that, that's not anything. But it is. Now, it... 
it comes after Tolkien's death, and it comes after the death of Christopher Tolkien, who was the, the keeper of the keys, as it were. And then we have this, uh, the, Tolkien Summer Soci- uh, the Tolkien Society Summer Seminar 2021. And they had a call for papers. This is an academic exercise. They have, se- uh, they have two seminars every year, as far as I'm understanding how, how it reads here. And the summer seminar, they did a call for papers. It says, uh, while interest in the topic of diversity has steadily grown within Tolkien research, it is now receiving more critical attention than ever before. Spurred by recent interpretations of Tolkien's creations and the cast list of the upcoming Amazon show The Lord of the Rings, and we'll get to that in a minute, it is crucial we discuss the theme of diversity in relation to Tolkien. How do adaptations of Tolkien's works, from film and art to music, open a discourse on diversity within Tolkien's works and his place within modern society? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Beyond his secondary world, diversity further encompasses Tolkien's readership and how his texts exist within the primary world. Who is reading Tolkien? How is he understood around the globe? How many... Or, sorry, how may these new readings enrich current perspectives on Tolkien? Representation is now more important than ever, and Tolkien's efforts to represent or ignore particular characteristics requires further examination. Additionally, how a character's identity shapes and influences its place within Tolkien's secondary world still requires greater attention. This seminar aims to explore the many possible applications of diversity within Tolkien's works, his adaptations, and his readerships. And then the, the papers that they are asking for, and these are academic analysis papers. This is uh, very dry, <clears throat> research-based type of documents, things that you would see like with doctoral dissertations or white papers or that kind of thing. They're not... They are not crafted for the general public to dive into and, and immediately consume. Uh, from, the, from the site, papers may consider but are not limited to, and they have a bullet list here, representation in Tolkien's works, race, gender, sexuality, disability, class, religion, age, etc., Tolkien's approach to colonialism and post-colonialism, adaptations of Tolkien's works, diversity and representation in Tolkien academia and readership, identity within Tolkien's works, alternity in Tolkien's works. Now, I'm not exactly sure what alternity is in this context, but when you go through this call for papers, just this, just this, this little bit here where it says while interest in the topic of diversity has steadily grown within Tolkien research where there's a number of statements that are made in just these two paragraphs that are taking a position and they are asserting as fact something to which they don't provide any citations How is the interest in diversity receiving more critical attention than before? Where? Where, where are the citations? 
Give us footnotes. Give us links. It's crucial we discuss the theme of diversity in relation to Tolkien. Why? Why is it crucial? And how do adaptations of Tolkien's works open a discourse on diversity within Tolkien's works and his place within modern society? I would suggest that Tolkien's place in modern society is the same as Tolkien's place has been in, in society at large since the books were published. This is, this is classic uh, middle-age-style literature, and Tolkien himself has even said it's not much of an allegory. You have that whole applicability versus allegory argument that he that he spoke to. Beyond his secondary world, diversity further encompasses Tolkien's readership. Okay, so his his readership is diverse. That's great. That's something that you like to see. If I create a work such as a talk show, uh, it behooves me to do that in a way that appeals to a broad audience rather than just, you know, 12 people in a corner over here on social media. The appeal to a diverse audience is something that any author or any creator should be looking at as, as a goal, maybe not necessarily the goal or the only goal. But you want people to like and appreciate and consume your product. And, and it is a product, and it is, as well as it is art. It's also something uh, that has some commerce attached to it. So, it, okay. Now this is this is this this is the one that gets me. Representation is now more important than ever. Says who? Because this is where you get into this hyperbolic, hyperactive, hypersensitive, hyper-agitated uh, barrel of monkeys on the on the internet, yelling and screaming and flinging their poo everywhere trying to remain relevant, trying to become relevant, basically saying it all, you know, I need to be seen. Okay, everybody needs to be seen. What makes you so special? Whatever, whatever side it is that you're on, you know, do I have to pay attention to you simply because you're the loudest one in the room? Do I have to pay attention to you simply because you have a certain number of followers on social media? Do I have to pay attention to what you have to say because you use certain memes or, or degrading and, and denigrating insulting language? What, 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 what right do you or anyone have for me having to pay attention to you and i and i mean this in the in a in a broad sense but when it says here representation is now more important than ever this is a this is one of those cultural things where the pendulum at some point is going to swing back the other way 
there is going to be a course correction on this stuff because representation is such a blanket, generic word. Yes, representation is important because everybody deserves a seat at the table of being a fan. I, I should be able to call myself a, a fan of Tolkien, of Star Wars, of Star Trek, of, of Indiana Jones, of Jaws, of D&D. You know, take your pick, whatever it is. I should be able to say that I'm a fan and you can't tell me I'm not allowed to be a fan. But that's always been the case. How a character's identity shapes and influences its place within Tolkien's secondary world still requires greater attention. Why? Because Tolkien has given it plenty of attention himself. He has written documents and letters and documents and letters and documents and letters and some essays. And he's spoken to all of this, at least in the abstract. He's addressed various different questions about his work over the years and multiple pieces of correspondence. You would think that maybe you look to that to gain some kind of an insight into Tolkien by reading Tolkien? Possibly. Now I'm looking at the abstracts. I'm looking here at the at the the various different brief write-ups of the of the papers that were selected for this seminar. And I I managed to catch the Saturday workshops, some of them. The Saturday the, the, this was a Saturday Sunday thing. And it was um, it was a very dry academic setting. The presentations were such that, for the most part, people were just reading their papers. There was no effort for presentation, I guess you could say. It would be almost as if I... I if I if I came on here and just started reading from a a from a website or from a PowerPoint or something here, so papers and papers and abstracts. I'll give you an, uh, for example, Cordelia Logsdon, Gondor in Transition: A Brief Introduction to Transgender Realities in the Lord of the Rings. This is one of the papers that's that was presented at the seminar. Now I'm going to read it to you. As most of these academics presented their papers, and you you tell me here if this is something that you think you could sit through for an entire two days of, of this. Using Gondor as a basis for a closer examination, this paper outlines the presence and function of transgender realities within Tolkien's work in ways the privileged reading of the text ignores or dismisses. Most specifically, Denethor... Fendulius of Dole Armoth, the ruling stewardship of Gondor as a concept, and the trajectory and timeline of Gondor's development are examined. In this process, the paper demonstrates the way reading against the grain provides a crucial expansion of the way both fans and academics currently engage with and think about Tolkien's work. It's very dry. It's very... 
it's very academic in its in its stuff. Now I look through these abstracts and I see the reaction uh, especially prior to the seminar, I saw a lot of, of blowback on the web, a lot of reaction ahead of the seminar, just reacting to this call for papers and the list of documents that were actually selected for this workshop. And I, 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 I want to be careful here in how, I, in how I say this because I don't mean this so much as a criticism of any particular group of people. But over the last year, year and a half especially, I've noticed that there are certain, there are certain people among fandoms and and this is a broad observation. This is not just one particular fandom like Tolkien or Trek or Star Wars or, or Battlestar Galactica or Doctor Who or whatever. It's fandom in general. And things have become so polarized and so divided that it seems to me that there are certain people, certain personalities who easily jump to a conclusion that something is going to be bad just based on a description or some kind of a rumor or something. We see the reaction when uh, when the James Bond production hired Phoebe Waller-Bridge. We see the reaction when Indiana Jones 5 hired Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Uh, there was uh, assumptions and expectations about Black, uh, the Black Widow solo movie coming out being uh, of a certain ideological political stripe. And there are people making assumptions, I think, a little bit too hastily based on incomplete information. I'm not saying that everybody's doing it, and I'm not going to say anybody in particular... Because it's it's a random thing. Every now and again, I'll see something. I'm like, are you you really want to go that far in making an assumption that something is going to be absolutely disastrously terrible, just based on very limited inter- information? I I think it's important that we be careful not to assume that something is going to be politically driven, agenda driven, woke, or you know, whatever whatever descriptions pejorative you want to put on there, it's easy for us to start making assumptions. And that's something that I that I try to be careful about here. And I've said it before in a number of occasions. Wait for the rest of the story to play out. And it's sometimes exactly what we think it's going to be and sometimes it's not. I've seen some reactions to Black Widow after the release of the movie saying, hey, I had it wrong. I thought it was going to be this feminist manifesto and it's not not bad. So we have to be careful here on how we react to things and reacting... I think is is probably a little bit 
less constructive than responding because reactions are driven by emotions. Response involves a little bit of thought. At least that's how I keep those separate in my head. You don't want to be reacting to things because you can do something in a rash bit of judgment that you later will regret. If you take the time to carefully think about a response to something that upsets you or something you don't like or something you think is is incorrect or wrong or whatever, then I think a well-reasoned response is much more effective than just a knee-jerk, off-the-cuff gut reaction. Now, your response might be driven by that gut reaction, but you need to be able to back it up with some critical thinking whatever that position is that you want to take. So when I see a lot of people sitting there and saying, oh, well, this, this summer seminar is going to be this terrible, terrible, terrible thing. Maybe it is. And some of these subjects are troubling to see. And people have pointed out the fact that this, this comes after the death of Christopher Tolkien, and, and Christopher was the one who was basically holding the line for a lot of, a lot of things. Uh, here's another one here. Um, now some of these sound kind of interesting. There's one here comparing, uh, Indian myths, you know, in the, the continent of India myths from that part of the world, comparing them to stuff that's in Tolkien. That, that actually sounds a little interesting. Boring as all get out the presentation, but it sounds like it's an interesting topic. But here's one, the invisible other, Tolkien's dwarf women and the feminine lack Sarah Brown doing that presentation. Here's one here. Um, uh, let's see. Par uh, Christopher Vaccaro, Pardoning Saruman, the queer in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Uh, here's another one. Um, Robin Reed, Queer Atheists, Agnostics, and Animists. Oh my. This presentation is part of a larger project I began in 2018 that asks the question of how fans of J.R.R. Tolkien's Legendarium, who are atheists, agnostics, animists, or part of New Age movements, interpret his work. So this one is focused more on the fans and the readers rather than the, um, the, the, the people what make the stuff. So rather than looking at Tolkien and his stuff, it's looking at how people respond to Tolkien and his work. Um, the presentation will focus on how the 34% of respondents who identified themselves as asexual, bisexual, gay, lesbian, pansexual, or queer, and their responses to the questions about their experiences with religious institutions, their favorite works, what makes Tolkien's work important to them, and how they deal with the assumption that his religious beliefs play a significant role in interpreting his work. Okay. Here's another one. Stars Less Strange, an analysis of fan fiction and representation within the Tolkien fan community. Uh, here's another one. Something Mighty Queer, destabilizing cis-hetero-amatonormativity in the works of Tolkien. Amatonormativity, what is even that word? Is it even a word? Um... 
and and the beginning of this, my project draws from intersectional feminist and postmodern queer theories as well as recent Tolkien scholarship to examine how Tolkien's depictions of characters, relationships, and ways of loving and existing destabilize contemporary cis-hetero-amatonormative structures. This is, I think this is the one... I don't know if this is the one that got everybody's tongue wagging about Sam and Frodo or not, but it's that kind of stuff. People are reading into Tolkien things that might not necessarily be there. Hello, Mazarus. Uh, welcome to have you in the chat. I also see over on uh, Facebook, David Lozano. Good to see you in here as well, giving us a wave. And uh, it's nice to see some new names popping up in the discussions. Uh, Hyper Kaiju says, is it even fair to act like you're a fan of something if you want to fundamentally change everything about it? It's an excellent question. Matoine, is the crux here that a writer-producer interprets a character or wants to make character gay, trans, etc., when the text is obviously the contrary? Well, that's the question. Is, you know, you have, not only do you have Tolkien's actual stories, but you also have a deep dive into Tolkien's process and analysis of how he did what he did, how he got to the point of these stories, how he created it, how he developed it, all of the research that went into it, all of the all of the work that he did creating the languages and all of this different study that he did. And it's in his own words with with the correspondence that he had. Here's here's what this is all about. And for other people to interpret it differently, that gets us into subjective truth. And if your interpretation of a story is something that is, you know, that's personal for you, and you want to read it that way, that's fine. But that does not mean it was the intent of the author or the creator of the work. If you see some other dimension to it, that's a bonus. That's an added element. That's another layer. But it's not necessarily what the creator intends. I remember one time I, I, I dabbled a little bit of music composition in my youth. When I was 18 years old, I composed a piece for my high school band. And as we were going through and we were conducting and, 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 and putting all of this together and we were listening to it, I was listening to it for the very first time it was ever, it was ever performed. It was here. We, we got, everybody got their parts and we all started to, to play. And I heard this little piece come out from the oboe that just floated across the top of everything else. And I remember thinking to myself, did I write that? I think I wrote that. I didn't think that it would sound like that. And it's these little bits and pieces that surprise even the creator when you come together and you look at this thing, whether it's a book or a piece of music or whatnot, and you have those little happy accidents, those little things that you didn't necessarily intend to have happened but just by nature of the different elements you put in there you get this nice little surprise this aha moment and for a reader 
for somebody who is consuming that work, for somebody who's you know reading it or listening to it, they're going to see or hear things that maybe they personally identify with in such a way that the, that the creator of the work may, may never have even thought of. That does not change the intent of the author. It does not alter the meaning of what the author put into the work. What you get out of it is you. What the author puts into it doesn't change because you see something else. And yes, Mazurus, the Cimmerillion is a big part of that as well. Um, Matawin says, Tolkien wrote his own concordance. If he explicitly defined his intent and thought processes, there's no gray area. Yes. And, and that's something we'll talk about. Uh, because on, on the back end, all right, we're going to take a, a real quick break. And then on the, on the other side of it, I had a chance to sit and talk with uh, John Davidson, who is the political editor at The Federalist. He wrote uh, an article regarding the seminar prior to the seminar actually happening. Uh, hello, Sci-Fi Stop. <laughs> I phobic I'm not sure I'm not afraid of these people but 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 see here's here's the other thing to, well I'm I'm I'll circle back to this point after we get done with this interview with John but uh, let me let me take a real quick break you guys can see my conversation with John Davidson of the Federalist and then I'll come back with some final points so stand by right after this don't go anywhere you know the film is going to end it's going to end badly for all of these people and you don't care Horribly, disgusting, revolting. Did that just happen? There is no kill like overkill. I was so scared that I wanted to take my lower lip and pull it out and pull it over my head so I could cover my eyes. Foreign Bodies, Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Sci-Fi For Me is about to take you on an incredible journey into the realms of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Interviews with writers, filmmakers, artists, and actors. Conventions and fandom. Previews and reviews of movies and television. Sci-Fi For Me is working to be the most popular science fiction magazine in the solar system. Subscribe now and enter the fantastic world of Sci-Fi For Me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. A few weeks ago, the Tolkien Society had their summer seminar talking about various different topics, and I thought we'd take a look here a little bit at those today, and uh, we've got some people who are going to be a little bit more knowledgeable about it than I am, uh, and uh, hopefully we could get some some insight and some perspective. Joining us uh, today, John Davidson. He is the political editor at The Federalist. Hello, sir. Hello. Good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So you have uh, you have an interest in Tolkien, and uh, you've got an article that you wrote over on The Federalist prior to. 
the summer seminar uh, actually taking place, and it was, you know, the title in an affront to its namesake, the Tolkien Society Goes Woke. And I'm, I'm wanting to, first of all, let's look at the Tolkien Society's efforts on this seminar, because their call for papers, when that first came out, a lot of people were looking at it a little sideways and kind of wondering what was going on if politics had gotten a little bit too far into the mix. And when you look at uh, the, their call for papers, this, this came out a while back. They were looking at papers to consider but are not limited to representation in Tolkien's works, race, gender, sexuality, disability, class, religion, age, etc., Tolkien's approach to colonialism and post-colonialism, adaptations of Tolkien's work, diversity and representation in Tolkien academia and readership, identity within Tolkien's works, and alternity in Tolkien's work. Alternity, I would assume, means anybody that's different. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm running up against some terms here that are decidedly academic and I guess kind of a deep dive into the scholarship side of things. But when all of this came out, when this call for papers came out, there were a number of people that sat there and said, oh my, the Tolkien Society has, has lost it. They've gone off the deep end. And and this the social media brouhaha that ensued after that... Um, I, I'm looking at some of these abstracts for some of these, and I'm not sure that the reaction to the seminar is as, well, I don't know if the seminar was as bad as people were trying to make out. So now that we've gotten past the actual event happening, how much of it have you been able to look at? Were you able to watch any of it to see what they actually presented at this at this conference? No, I didn't, because I'm not in interested in spending my time on abject nonsense, <laughs> uh, especially when it comes to uh, Tolkien's work. Uh, you don't have to read the papers or watch the presentations to understand what's happening here. You just need to be familiar with the state of academia and critical theory uh, and, and the sort of, uh, you know, you called it scholarship earlier. That's a very generous term for this. Um, this is political advocacy. Uh, this is left-wing ideology. Uh, I wouldn't call it scholarship. Uh, other words that you may have encountered just in perusing the, the titles of some of these papers are things like cis-heteronormativity. Right. Uh, you know, and, uh, 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 you know, Amato you know, eroticism or something like that. Uh, um, I, I think, uh, I think the word, um, Amato, um, let me look it up because I, I, I keep stumbling across yeah. being able to even pronounce it. Uh, uh, something mighty queer destabilizing cis hetero Amato normativity in the works of Tolkien. I have no idea what Amato normativity That's what it is. is. Cis hetero Amato nor Amato normativity. Th th these are words that sort of come out of, uh, critical theory uh, and uh, uh, identity you know, studies in mm -hmm. academia. Um, and, and as I say, they, they have nothing to do with Tolkien's work itself or Tolkien's thought. Um, they have everything to do 
with um, sort of grinding a uh, cultural and ideological axe and attempting to politicize and read Tolkien into um, modern academic controversies and and narratives. Um, and, and, and that's that's why I reacted to it. And that's why a lot of people who love Tolkien and, and who have studied and written about Tolkien over the years reacted strongly to it because, right. because we're able to recognize this for what it is. It's, it, it's, it's an attempt to sort of hijack uh, Tolkien's legacy and, uh, uh, and, and undermine it. Given all of that, and, and one of the things that we talk about here is the fact that we don't get too deep in the weeds in terms of politics, but social, sure. uh, the, the social justice cancel culture stuff does frequently come up. But let me ask you, are, are, is, it, is it fair, and, and I'm, just, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, is it fair to make assumptions about the seminar's goals Without actually attending the seminar, and you know, it there are and and not you know, I'm not throwing this right at you, but there were a lot of people who were making assumptions about what the seminar was supposed was supposedly going to do. And I'm reading some of these abstracts, and I did manage to catch some of the presentations on the Saturday, uh, but. For me personally, not being a deep dive Tolkien, you know, I've I've read everything six thousand times, and I can quote everything back to you in Elvish. I, you know, I'm not I'm not that far into it, but a lot of these presentations were dry, boring. I have no idea how many people even bothered to check in and and really hear any of the information that was presented. So the the hue and cry over uh, you know hijacking Tolkien and and that sort of thing, I wonder how much of a real concern that should be versus what it actually is. Given the fact that you're going to have so many people who didn't pay attention to this at all, they're going to see the Twitter drama, they're going to see the social media blowback about it. And maybe there's a Streisand effect that comes out of this, but I don't know that there were a whole lot of people who were even paying attention to this seminar. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I, I, I hope not, first of all. Um, but I, I'll say a couple of things. Um, going back to, to your earlier point about making assumptions about, about this conference and these papers, um, I wouldn't say that, that myself and others were making assumptions. I, I would say we were taking the Tolkien Society at its word. When they put out a call for papers, they said, you know, we want the theme of this year's conference to be Tolkien and diversity, right? And then they listed all the things that you mentioned at the top of the show there. Right. Uh, things, as I said, that, that really have, have no relation uh, to Tolkien's work and could only be included as part of some, some other agenda that, that, that's quite divorced from trying to come to a deeper understanding or appreciation of, of Tolkien and, and his, his uh thought and his artistic vision. Um, I, the other thing I'll say is that the, um, the notion that just because a lot of people are not paying attention to these, this particular conference or these particular papers uh, doesn't mean that it's something that we can safely ignore. Mm -hmm. And um, at the risk of introducing so, some, some politics into your show, <laughs> I am the political editor at the Federalist after all. Right. Um, you know, these kinds of ideas uh, about sort of um, identity and um, 
social justice and representation and, um, uh, uh, you know, re-interpreting, uh, you know, classical works of literature or art to mean something new or to sort of subvert them is something that's been going on in academia for a long time. And a lot of the things that we sort of see flower, you know, into mainstream society and mainstream culture at large spend many years kind of percolating through academia right. and sort of, um, you know, they become well established within these really small circles of, of academics that have, you know, uh, really uh, particular ideological agendas. And, and then when they come out, when they sort of break free from the campus, and come out into the wider world. It seems like the, they've appeared from nowhere, but in fact, they, they've been uh, they've been gestating for for a long time. And and so I, I think one of the ways that we might see this play out is when Amazon comes out with its Lord of the Rings series right. uh, here. Cool. Uh, I guess next year it was supposed to be this year, but the pandemic delayed it. Right. Uh, next year, whenever Amazon comes out with their Lord of the Rings series you may find that there's a lot of ideas and, and a lot of storylines and characters in that Amazon Lord of the Rings series that bear little to no uh, relation to Tolkien's actual stories or his artistic vision um, or, or even to his works. And that the reason for including maybe some of these new characters or storylines or scenes or even just sort of depictions of Middle Earth uh, isn't because of Tolkien. It's because of these other ideas about Tolkien that that are have kind of been introduced in critical theory and in academia, and to some extent as well, just in you know in the desire to how how would you say Game of Thronesify Tolkien. Well, uh, and I and I know I've seen uh, several people that have expressed concern about that particular series, mainly because of a couple of things. One, the fact that. Uh, the Tolkien estate is now no longer involved, and the the uh, the professor that they had as their Tolkien advisor consultant is no longer involved, and a lot of this stuff seemed to break after Christopher Tolkien's death, and including this conference, including I, I this should, conference, I should know. and the the hiring, and this is a again we go back to assumptions. There is an assumption that's being made that the the Lord of the Rings prequel has hired the uh, the intimacy consultant and apparently there's some casting words out there uh, uh, some casting uh, announcements uh, looking for people who are comfortable with nudity and and based on the number of projects that we know are taking place in that area and code words, you know, instead of it's not being called the Lord of the Rings, it's be, it's working off off of a off of a code word project name. There are assumptions, like you're saying, uh, where you know people are worried that they're going to try to turn this into another Game of Thrones type of thing, where there's a lot of gratuitous sex and nudity and whatever else, and goes against. A lot of what Tolkien was uh, was about with all of this. Now you talk about reading things into it. There are uh, plenty of of places, and we've actually talked about it here in a, in a few different times, where interpretation of art 
is subjective to a certain point. I mean, people can read things into a story or read things into a, a movie or a TV show that may not necessarily be there. Is is there any possibility that some of this is people who are people who are genuinely seeing themselves in an alternate interpretation of characters. I mean, for for example, I know the whole Sam Frodo thing seems to be one of the big one of the big topics that a lot of people are are talking about. But this idea of you know seeing myself in the story, are people able to see what they are? Are, are they seeing what they want to see, or is there a possibility that they're actually able to interpret Tolkien in a way that they do see themselves represented? I don't know if I'm asking that very clearly, but sure. I, well, I, I think I understand what you're saying. I, I think that, you know, it's not as though Tolkien was a abstract painter, right? Right. Uh, here, here's a person, uh, a, a philologist, a scholar of, of, you know, middle English and European med- medieval languages who set out to write essentially an Iliad for England, an epic an epic story. Um, and he, he was very, and we, we don't just have the stories themselves. We have copious amounts of letters and correspondence and commentaries and essays from, from Tolkien and a whole body of work that he produced over a very long and distinguished career. Right. So it's not as though it's a mystery, you know, uh, 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 that needs to be interpreted about what Tolkien was doing and what his artistic vision was and what his themes were and what, in some ways, even his uh, uh, his you know message was to the extent that he had a message in, in, in all of this. It's, it's not um, something that is as open to interpretation, I would say, as as a lot of modern art. And I would say also, you know, Tolkien was very consciously uh, you know turning away from from any concepts of modern art or modern artistic expression and marching you know, sort of sweeping the table clean from Cervantes and marching backwards in history into the Middle Ages. That's what he was doing, you know, and, and, and Tolkien scholars know that. And that's actually a source of very rich uh, study and research and commentary and conversation about, you know, why uh, somebody in, the you know, early 20th century uh, would do this and what, what they meant by it and, and you know, uh, what it means for storytelling and what it means for literature. You know, he invented, he invented a whole genre that when it first appeared, a lot of people, you know, sort of made fun of it. A, a lot of, a lot of big fancy intellectuals and East coast, uh, you know, uh, magazine writers thought that the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings were ridiculous. Right. Uh, and, and one of the reasons that the critical consensus was sort of forced to reckon with Tolkien is that W.H. Auden, the, the famous poet, was a was a student of Tolkien's at Oxford, and he was one of the early prominent defenders of the Lord of the Rings. And when he came out and said Tolkien has done something here that no one's ever done, uh, and and it's a serious work of art and needs to be taken seriously, um, it sort of disrupted the fad at the time, which was to, you know, uh, make fun of Tolkien or mock the Lord of the Rings as some sort of foolish ch- children's story or something like that. So. I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I but but for one thing, but I also don't know that um, the works of Tolkien avail themselves of the kind of 
you know, personalized Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, interpretation or maybe abstraction that, that other works of art might do. I also think it's pretty, uh, in terms of seeing yourself in, in stories, I, you know, we're talking about like hobbits and elves and and dwarves and orcs and goblins and wizards, you know, I don't think (laughs) any of us are really looking to see ourselves in this story. That's not the point of the story. And if that's the, if that's your approach to, to something like Lord of the Rings, you're going to, you're going to miss the point. Well, and I think the other part of that too, is when you stop and consider, you know, how, how long has that story been out there that both, uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Narnia stories from CS Lewis were written, uh, with an eye toward presenting Christian allegory uh, in in some way. Now they're not uh, Tolkien's work is certainly not as overt as C.S. Lewis, for example, with you know with his uh, uh, symbology in the Narnia books. But if you take into account that Tolkien was a uh, a Catholic and he was also uh, like you say a philologist, a, a professor, an academic. Uh, it seems to me that it, anybody that's trying to read into these modern trend interpretations would have to reckon with his values and belief systems because they kind of run counter to each other in some of these. They sure do. I, I, I would say about the, the allegorical thing, Tolkien explicitly uh, said that Lord of the Rings is not allegorical. And, and one of the reasons he said that is because you know, uh, some of these books came out, uh, you know, they sort of spanned World War Two, right? They, he started working on them uh, in the aftermath of World War One. And and uh, and a lot of people, when the Lord of the Rings books came out, you know, said, wow, this is an allegory for Nazi Germany and uh, and sort of the European war. And he was at pains to say, look, this is not an allegory for modern political, uh, you know, events, great political events of our time. This is, you know, that's the wrong way to think about this. Now, is it some, in some ways allegorical, uh, has, have an allegorical connection to his Roman Catholic faith? I think it does. Um, maybe, you know, less explicitly than, than C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, which is pretty straightforwardly allegorical, but certainly the Lord of the Rings and all of Tolkien's work and his, his whole artistic vision was informed and infused with his Catholic faith. And I think it's difficult to understand his themes uh, and, and, and really grasp the fullness of his artistic vision without taking into account uh, that Catholic faith and the way that it, that it not only infused his work, but it infused his whole way of looking at, at the world and that the creative process and, and, you know, one great little short story that he wrote that really unpacked this, that has nothing to do with Lord of the Rings is, is a little short story he published called Leaf by Niggle. And it's about the creative process. And it is far more allegorical and far more sort of Lewisian uh, than his, his Lord of the Rings work or his, his writings about Middle Earth and, and gets into his idea of what, creating is and 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 gets to something that he talked about in his letters of being a sub creator and thinking of himself as a sub creator in in concert with uh, the almighty and, and that that was that was sort of where his starting point for being a writer and being a, a, an artist 
And I think those are the things, if you, if you ignore all that, you're not going to say anything sensible about Tolkien. So the, the people that are coming at it from this perspective, that, uh, that all of this, if you reinterpret Tolkien, you can see all of this in there. How do you, how do you approach an honest debate discussion about those ideas because you know like you know you're you're probably more than a little passing familiar with the idea of political polarization in this country right now having worked for you know with your work at the federalist you know that it's very difficult for anybody who's on opposite sides of a topic to uh, to be rational with each other and be civil with each other so how do you, how do you approach having actual discussions about these themes and ideas and try to persuade them that, well, no, Tolkien actually didn't have any of this in his work, and here's why. Because a lot of this, you're going to end up devolving into, you know, uh, what I call the, the neener neener crowd, and there's going to be a lot of mud and name-calling, and, and you don't get any kind of productive conversation happening. It's a good question, and I think it's a question that applies far beyond uh, Tolkien. You know, how do you have a substantive debate and a good faith debate uh, and discussion about um, contested ideas or interpretations, whether it's of literature or film or or you know any other art form, uh, in in a environment that's so polarized and that's that's so tense like ours is right now, and in which everything sort of becomes political whether it has to be or not. Uh, and I don't know the answer to that question, not just for this discussion about Tolkien, but, but really in the discussion of everything else uh, in our society, uh, everything else that sort of is kind of dividing us. You know, hundreds of millions of people have read Tolkien over the years. And if anything, it should be a point of unity it should be something that we kind of come together to celebrate, to revel in, to discuss, to explore together. Um, one of the great works of literature of, of our uh, era. Uh, and I think one of the reasons myself and others reacted to this Tolkien Society seminar uh, was that it, was, it, it seems very clear that the direction that they want to take uh, t conversations about Tolkien is not in good faith. Mm. And it's not in good faith because it is uh, a pretty blatant politicization of, of Tolkien when none is necessary. The only reason that you would want to politicize Tolkien in this way, and, and as I said, read things into Tolkien's work that are not there, um, is, is one, to in a desperate attempt to be relevant, which I don't understand that because Tolkien is is always relevant because it's a it's a timeless work of art. Right. Um, or, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, to undermine uh, uh, Tolkien's artistic vision and, and to subvert it by um, by sort of deconstructing it and then and then inserting these these alien ideas into his work. And I think that's part of what's happening here. And 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 that's part of why um, I think it's incumbent upon people who do love Tolkien to, to point that out. Well, and I agree with that. And I think also the other part of that is that if if there is that discussion and debate, it certainly does need to be an informed discussion in terms of knowing what, know, 
knowing what the other guy says and knowing what their intentions are, knowing what they mean by what they say and understanding the other points of view so that you can either answer or persuade or, or otherwise have those conversations. I think there's a lot of times people maybe sit down and say, well, I already know everything that I need to know about it and I'm right and you're not. And hopefully we can get past that point. We can have some, some honest discussion about this and other topics. Like you say, it does, it does go beyond Tolkien uh, certainly in, in the, in the fabric of our culture, I mean, you look at uh, video games and comic books and, and a lot of our entertainment spaces that are that are having these discussions uh, as we speak now everywhere. Right. So yeah. it's, it's a tough thing to do. All right, John, well, thank you very much for spending some time with us and talking about it. Where can people find you online if anybody wants to know more about your work? I publish regularly at thefederalist.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at John D. Davidson. And, um, yeah, I, I usually write about Tolkien once a year. Um, last time I wrote about him was when Christopher Tolkien died, and, and this time it's with the conference, and I guess next time it will be when the Amazon series comes out. All right. Well, when that happens, maybe we'll have you back, and we'll, we'll have this discussion in the, in the next part of that discussion. so I look forward to it. All right. Thanks for, for being here, John. All right. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Well, there you go. John Davidson at The Federalist. want to thank him for taking time to talk with us. And I have had correspondence also with uh, Brad Berser. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Bradley Berser is uh, a professor of history at Hillsdale College. And he has an interview, or not an interview, he has an article uh, over at the National Review. The headline, J.R.R. Tolkien's work transcends wokeness. And he's talking about uh, the seminar as well. And this was uh, ahead of the seminar actually taking place. Uh, but I want to I highlight this one thing. We, we were originally going to have Brad on the show. He had a last-minute schedule conflict. He wasn't able to make it today. But I do want to point out something here. Uh, one of the criticisms of uh, Tolkien's work came uh, from someone named Germaine Greer. Uh, and as, as Bursar writes it, Germaine Greer thought the trilogy reactionary against the 20th century, talking about the Lord of the Rings, reactionary against the 20th century as it ignored politics, wars, the black movement, and the sexual revolution. Okay, so... Earlier criticism prior to modern day thought was that the Lord of the Rings ignores politics, wars, race, gender, and sex. But now we're going to have a seminar entirely focused on race, gender, and sex, representation, diversity, and all that. Yeah. Can you have it both ways? Can you really, can you really have it both ways? I don't know that you can. 
So anyway, we we are talking to Brad. I'm hoping to get him on the show at some point soon to talk about this and some other things. He's got some articles that he's written about C.S. Lewis and uh, and Tolkien as well. And uh, Christopher Hoffman, one of our contributors, he made an interesting point yesterday. He was he was here uh, observing uh, the program as we were talking to uh, to John. And with regard to the comparison, you know, we're looking at the Lord of the Rings prequel as uh, Amazon trying to Game of Thrones it. And Christopher made a good point. He said Game of Thrones and the stuff that George R.R. R. Martin did with that is more along the lines of the pulp stories that you might find with Robert E. Howard, for example, the Conan the Barbarian stuff, as opposed to what Tolkien was doing. Tolkien, Tolkien and, and Martin are not in the same category of fantasy, I don't think. I, and I think Christopher made a good point in terms of the style and, and the, the stuff what's in the stories and how they're presented. I think you can make a better a better comparison between Game of Thrones and Conan than you can Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings stands by itself in a lot of ways. And, you know, like, like we were talking about, you know, even though there are not a whole lot of people that probably pay attention to this, uh, this particular seminar, those ideas are out there. And on a on a personal note for me, it was really surprising because one of the people making a presentation was a former classmate of mine at Oklahoma Christian College way back in the day. She's still a professor of literature there, Cami Agan. She was a few years ahead of me, so I didn't I didn't know her very well. I knew of her. I knew who she was. But I I will admit to a great deal of surprise when I heard her name as the final presenter on Saturday. And I thought, oh, I know this person. Uh, but it was very difficult to get through her presentation as well. Just, you know, this stuff was just... <sighs> I, there's part of me that thinks that it would have been more interesting if it had been presented better. But at the same time... If you have really good presentations that start to attract attention, then a lot of this stuff is probably going to get more traction than it otherwise deserves. And in academic circles, that's where it starts. That's where it starts with the schools and the ideas percolating in the schools. You get them while they're young, and you never know what they're going to be thinking by the time they get to their teen years, so... Anyway, all right. So Hyperkaiju says, "Thank goodness Amazon canceled their planned Conan series." I, I do I do I remember something about that? All right, all right, all right. Office dogs doing their doing their part to uh, maintain security at the compound. Uh, Sci-Fi Snob says Gandalf goes from gray to white. What do you think that means? <laughs> Just like Michael Jackson. Uh, well, you know, it is, it is what it is. All right. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks very much for watching folks to, uh, to, you know, we got, uh, we doing, uh, uh, ranker pit tonight. Maybe, maybe ranker pit tonight. We'll see. 
but we do have uh, the week's headlines on Saturday at uh, 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 Central on Good Morning Multiverse. I am uh, reaching out to various different publicity representatives to try to line up some guests for this show. Uh, I did go off of a, a suggestion yesterday from Dead Eraser 117, and I sent an invite to the publicity people for Mark Hamill. We'll see what happens there. I did hear back from representatives of Todd Helbing, who's the showrunner at Superman and Lois. Um, he is flattered, but has to decline at this time. So I guess uh, with the show being in production, he's he's tied up with that. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, get him on the show at a later date. And uh, we're still taking suggestions from any of you who have ideas uh, about... Uh, about who we should invite. And I am an equal opportunity questioner. I well, I hopefully I don't break the net again. Where where I'm I you know, once breaking Twitter once is is enough for me. So, all right. Uh, good to see everybody in the chat and uh, and around. I see Maze uh, let's see Mazerus, Snob, Hyperkaiju uh, who else do I see in here? Uh, so Matuin and David over on Facebook watching. So it's good to have all of you here. Don't forget, uh, we are on a lot, not all, we're on a lot of the social media channels. So find us over there. And uh, if you want to find us on Odyssey as well, uh, you can follow us there. Uh, get Kurtzman on for some Star Trek questions. I, I, you know what? I think it would be an interesting conversation to have with Alex Kurtzman. Um, <clears throat> we'll see if we can make that happen. All right. Thanks very much for being here, folks. Uh, a, a couple of things to remember. If you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. There are four. Lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.